Six different times in the book of Revelation, we read about the elders and the four living creatures and all of the saints bowing down before the throne of God. Six times. It's, it's like we're supposed to get something from that from John the Revelator. So let me read just one of these passages in Revelation chapter 4. And if you want to follow along, if you go to westwinds.org slash today, you can see all the list of these six scriptures. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 smaller thrones. And seated on those smaller thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads, symbolizing both their purity and their royalty. And from the throne of God came flashes of lightning, peals of thunder, and before the throne were seven burning torches, and there was a sea of glass like crystal in front of it. And then skipping down a few verses. The 24 elders all fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worshiped him who lives forever and ever, and thus they cast down their crowns before him. Now, there's a lot of bowing, a lot of casting, and it, and it has a biblical term. The term that the Bible uses to describe this sort of worship is that people fall prostrate. Prostrate is a word that must be pronounced with great care. I will endeavor to pronounce it correctly all day long, and I confess, I spent the last few days with my parents, and they recently heard a joke that they repeated to me many times. This joke is now stuck in my head. It's impossible for me to get through the next five minutes without sharing this joke with you. So it's coming, and I just want you to be prepared that things might get a little punny. But over and over and over again, we read about these elders and these saints and these living creatures falling prostrate before the one who is on the throne. And we know that this signified some important things about adoration and submission and fealty. And it occurs to me that once you reach a certain age, you probably need to have your prostrate examined. Now, this might be uncomfortable for some of you. Shouldn't be painful. Having your prostrate checked should not interfere with daily activities. But you may want to consult the help of someone you trust. <laughs> this is the greatest day of my entire life. <laughs> when me and several hundred of my closest friends got together for exam time. <laughs> and here, of course, is the reason is because a lot of us are bowing, but we're bowing to the wrong thing. And some of us refuse to bow altogether. And even if all you remember is the little joke that my mom got from one of the pastors at her church, it still bears repeating that every now and then you got to get your prostrate checked. Maybe just as a preventative measure, but maybe as something more. And when we examine the biblical material on why this is so important, I think we actually do find some pretty key components, pretty key aspects of what it means to follow God. And if, it, if, if bowing 
does involve adoration and submission and fealty. We should explore those things in turn. And I, I think maybe the latter two make the most sense. I mean, submission, fealty, we all, have, we all have Game of Thrones images in our mind. We know what it's like for, you know, the knights to bow down before King Arthur. But ad adoration seems like a, a funny one. Like, when I really adore somebody, I never think about bowing down before them. Like, when Carmel and I fell in love, I didn't, I didn't fall down on the ground before her and start, you know, kissing her feet or something. I mean, that's a, that's a bad first date. And then I started thinking, well, why, like, why would adoration be part of the semantic range of falling prostrate? And then I started thinking about all the games we'd play when we were little kids. Games like, uh, you know, Heads Down, Seven Up, or Duck, Duck, Goose. You know, all the games, you know, or if you're, if you, if you, if you're a, a torturer and you make your kids do yoga, you know, if you're one of those. You know, and I, thought, I started thinking about all the times where we're, we're bowing down when we're kids and, and how, like, how funny it is, how fun it is, how mischievous. And I remember playing those games, and, and I would always look over at my friends and, and giggle, you know, because you were pretty convinced that no one was ever going to see you. And then I started imagining what it would be like to be in heaven, bowing down before the throne of God, and turning to you and making jokes with you, and then Jesus being mad at the front of the class, like, uh, Mr. McDonald, is there something you'd like to share with the four living creatures? <laughs> and then it just... It occurred to me how strange it is that when I start imagining what it's like to be in heaven, and that's important practice, by the way. When you read something in the scripture, you ought to imagine what it's like to be there. So as I started imagining what it's like to be there in the throne room of God, why did I so quickly imagine I would be in trouble? Like, why did I so quickly jump to the fact that God is probably a little bit mad at me or disappointed? I mean, I know we all fall short. I know it. But for all my theological education, for the thousands of hours that I've spent studying the Scripture, for, for everything that I've done, why did I automatically assume that God's a little bit ticked off all the time? Doesn't it stand to reason that it, it would be the other way around? That you get there, the throne room of God, and now finally he's got nothing left to be mad about? Whatever imperfections I have here, I'm not going to have there. I'm told that we're purified, we're glorified. There, there's no sin in the presence of God. So what's he got to be mad about? Maybe he's not mad at all. Like what if Jesus turns out to be even better than we imagined? And then, of course, we know all this stuff about Jesus from the Gospels. And we know that he was never soft on sin. We know that he could at sometimes be harsh and a harsh teacher. But we also know he was remarkably tender. Like what if we get there and... He's just so excited that he's found his lost son. Or he's rejoicing over his lost coin. Or he's gathering up all his adopted sons and daughters and, and having a party. Because we see evidence in the Scripture that Jesus is joyful, kind, happy to see us. So then I play the whole game all over again. I imagine myself up in heaven. We're all there. We're in a big circle. We're bowing down in adoration, you know. And then I look over to make jokes at you. But, but it's not you beside me. It's Jesus. And I get embarrassed, you know. Oh, you know. And so then I think, okay, I've been caught. Jesus knows I was going to make jokes. And so then I look up so that he knows I'm sorry. But he's up at the front going, 
and then I get embarrassed again because now I've been caught two times, so I immediately bow my head, and there's Jesus underneath me looking up. <laughs> and no matter where I go, like, it's like he likes me. It's like he's glad we're there. And then I wonder, what would it, what would it be like if he, like, what would it be like if God is love? Like, if that's actually true. And if it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. And if it's his favor that's our desire. And what if the whole reason we're bowing down in the first place is not because we're scared or we're required, but what if we love because he first loved us? What if the whole orientation of our worship toward God was not just to prove that we're in love with him, but it's because we're absolutely brought to our knees with the mind-blowing revelation that he loves us. And it's that love that ultimately leads to submission. I mean, we think of submission normally as like a, like a jujitsu word, right? You know, we submit to God because he chokes us out. We're tapping madly on God's arm. I'll stop sinning, just let me breathe. But real submission you, you, is voluntary. Not my will, but yours be done. We submit because we're in love. We submit because we recognize what God has given us when God gave us himself. And so the sacrifices that God asks us to make the offerings that God asks us to make from time to money to treasure and everything in between, it's because it's of the relationship born out of love. Because perfect love casts out fear. It doesn't double down on it. And I realized, man, God is speaking to me all the time, just like he's speaking to you. And when we recognize his voice, because that's what sheep do. My sheep recognize my voice. When we recognize his voice, we realize that what God's asking is usually a little more than we want to give. Sometimes a lot more. And it requires submission to say yes to God when we'd rather say no or pretend like he's not asking us in the first place. And I was thinking about this this weekend when I was with my parents um, visiting the Carmel and I and the kids. We drove up to Toronto. My dad was doing a wedding over there. And, and my mom was telling me this big story. And she was talking about her, her piano. Now, you, you got to know a little bit about my parents. You know, they... They were very, very poor when they got married. My mom was really poor when she grew up, and they got married 1,700 years ago, back when, when pastors had to marry women who played the piano. That's how, that's how it was written in the law. It's the 11th commandment. They redacted it later, but back then, now we marry basketball players, but back then they had to marry women who played the piano. So dad and mom get married, and she plays the piano, but they don't have a piano because they don't have any money. And then, and then through a, a wild story, mom hears about this grand piano that somebody's got for sale, and she scrapes together some money. And when I was just a, a kid, tiny little kid, she buys this gorgeous lounge grand piano. Um, and it was, it was the centerpiece of our family home, like for as long as I can remember. 
it was where we would put presents and punch bowls, and everyone would come in and ooh and ah at this piano. It was white with gold inlay. It was just a gorgeous piece of furniture. And then mom would sit at the piano and entertain as people would come in. It was just, it was, it was amazing. It was a miracle. And it was, if, if our family had a heart in our home, it was that piano. And one day, God told my mom to sell the piano and give the money to the church. Actually, he told her to, to give it to the church because they were doing a, an auction, a fundraiser. And she was mad. No, Lord, you gave me this piano. I don't want to give it away. But, but she knew it was God. She knew it was the Lord telling her to do it, to sacrifice. And so she said, okay. And she paid for the piano to be delivered from her house to the church where they were holding the auction. And, and nobody bid on it. If you ever doubt the character of God's people, you think about an entire church of parishioners refusing to bid on my mom's piano because they knew how precious it was to her. If we had an auction and I put up a piano, you suckers would pay eight bucks for it and walk away, <laughs> high-five each other as you got a deal, put it in a koozie for crying out loud. <laughs> But nobody bid on it. They totally blocked her. And so then my mom's got this piano that now she's got to get back to her house. So she hires a mover, get it back home, and they drop it. They drop, they drop my mom's piano. And in the process, a, a piece of wood comes off of it, and she realizes that this beautiful finish is not the original finish. And, you know, she's a real Martha Stewart type. She, she crafty. So she refinishes this piano. It's spectacular. It's gorgeous. It's Tiger Wood, built in 1862 in the Broadmoor Piano Factory in London. She went over, got all the papers signed and verified, got the autograph of the family that did it, got the original ledger papers from this, this piano. And she told me, she said, David, I gave the piano away. And when God gave it back to me, it was better than I could ever possibly have imagined. That's what happens when we submit. We trust God with a little, and God returns a lot, a lot. Now, about a month ago, my mom called me up, and this is so cool. And she said, David, the first time God told me to give away the piano, I got it back. And it was better than I could have ever dreamed. And she goes, and that's going to happen this time, too, because I'm going to give away the piano. And I don't know what God's going to do with it, but I know it will be better than I imagined. So she's shipping the piano uh, to the chapter house in Jackson, the place that my friends and I, my family and I have been uh, renovating to train pastors, and it's going to be, I don't know, isn't that cool? That's so sweet. You know. So the, the auction is next Saturday. <laughs> Just kidding. No, so that, that's what happens, though, when we, when we submit to God. We think God's asking for so much, and we give it, and then he blows our doors off, man. He just, he blesses it because, because he loves you. When you get in the presence of God, the thing that you're going to feel, the thing that's going to ripple through your body, it's not judgment, but love. Because he's a good father. We experience the love of God. That love requires our submission. And then the final and ultimate step is for us to give God, everything, to, to pledge our total fealty to him, which involves giving and exchanging oaths, you know, that you're the Lord of all, that we give ourselves to you totally, 
We confess with our mouth. We believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord. I mean, we, we give him everything. We make promises, and we cast down our crowns. I love that image. Because when God looks at you, he doesn't see paupers. He doesn't see hobos. He doesn't see homeless people. He doesn't see riffraff. God looks at you. He sees kings and queens. So when he asks for your loyalty, he's not asking something lightly. You got your own throne. You got your own crown. You got your own robes. You got your own kingdom. You got your own dominion. And God says, I want it all. I want it all. So then we start imagining what it would be like for us to cast our crowns. I mean, what are our crowns? Our, our accomplishments? Sure. Our resources? Yeah. Maybe the things that we've acquired, achieved, that we possess? If you can think of it, if you can name it, the answer is yes. He wants it all. And when we give ourselves to God, we, we give ourselves totally entirely, through and through, top to bottom, stem to stern. Because he's God of the universe. Lord over the living and the dead. King of the past. Promise of the future. He's everything. And so we look at all this stuff and we realize, man, if we can't bow, we better learn. We better make sure we're bowing to the right person. For the right reasons, we better make sure that, that that act of falling prostrate is adoring and submissive and devoted. Because it matters. It affects the way we live. It affects why we live. And every now and then, you got to check yourself before you wreck yourself. you got to make sure that you are totally in alignment with the God of the universe, living with him at the very center so you don't become eccentric. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for the good news of your gospel, of your word, and your truth. Man, we need it. Every day, we need to be focused and committed and strengthened by you. And we want to make sure that we're led in love and devotion. We want to make sure that we are submitting to your will. We want to make sure that we're strong, that we're healthy, that we're noble, and that we bow down. So what you get is the best of who we are, not just the worst of it, not just the dregs, but the dreams. So, Lord, we commit this to you as your church and your people. And all God's people said, amen.